One of the things I love about <clears throat> traveling around the world is the number of ways that God uses people. It, he just calls people for all kinds of ministry. I've seen it all over the world. I'm so glad I'm not God. I couldn't keep track of all of this. I never even heard of you until I came up here. You, SFC, and then you when you moved here. <laughs> that there's people reaching. We're talking, going to talk about revenge today. I thought snowboarders were just people to get revenge on because of you. Now I'm glad to know you're there, so I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> no, no, it's just it's it's just so fun to me as I travel around the world to see how God calls people and uses people. So glad you're here. I'd like to pray for you. Sure. Father, I would like to pray for Tina and Corey, <clears throat> Lord, and for the ministry of SFC worldwide. Lord, reaching a, reaching a, a, a group within our, um, a subculture within our own culture that, that many of us here would never have even the opportunity to do this. And yet here they are doing this. God, we are so blessed to have them and pray that you would continue to strengthen them and bless them. Lord, I pray for uh, Tina's pregnancy. First of all, I pray that you would continue to give her health. And um, uh, um, just let this be a boring pregnancy all the way through. And uh, we look forward to their child. Father, I pray for their strength as they do ministry together and work. Lord, I heard her say that they would like to uh, cut back on her work when the other one is born. And I pray that you would do that. And Lord, that brings in the whole area of finances. Lord, one of the things I have learned is that you do own everything, so money's never the issue. So I pray that you would raise the money that they need to to do their ministry and the money that they need, Lord, to raise their family because they're right, it's very expensive up here. Thanks for taking care of them. Thanks for bringing them to our church. And thanks for giving us a chance to partner with them. We love them dearly. In your son's name, amen. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Is your second one going to run around and dance too? Have to see. That's right. Thanks for uh, praying for us. Nancy and I just got back from vacation. Uh, we were in the Caribbean, and uh, don't feel sorry. It's okay for us. While we were gone, our grandson was born. We have another grandson. So, very excited. This is the best one. He's the most special of all of them. So, <clears throat> his name is Maxwell James. He's the only one named after me. So it's a whole inheritance. <laughs> So there's a couple of things on here. <clears throat> you can read the whole thing. There's a lot of good information, as you know. But the one thing I want to call attention to this Tuesday, this Tuesday night, we're doing a ministry that we haven't done before as a church. We, we do have uh, a lot of thoughts about the children on this side of the county. We know, you know we do VBS, and this place is packed. But we wanted to do more than that. And so several people got together and said, why don't we do a trunk or treat? So we're doing it this Tuesday night. And we already, have, we already know we have a bunch of kids coming, but we could use some help. First of all, we could use your prayers because this is a new ministry. But I also found out we need some trunks. We don't, you don't even necessarily have to have them decorated. We can help you with that. But we need trunks and we need food. Right, Debbie? Stand up, Debbie. Tell them what you need. It's not about kids who need food. <clears throat> so please really think about that. This Tuesday night, we'd like, we'd like to figure out how to grow this ministry and, and reach out to the children on this side of the county. So thanks for hanging around for that. Uh, a couple things I'd like to pray for. <clears throat> yes, I woke up this morning with a kind of a tickly throat. Apologize for that. Um, 
One is this weekend, our elders and many of our uh, non-sitting elders, they served at one time and our leadership are going away on a retreat. We do this once a year. So uh, if God puts us on your hearts this week, please pray for us. Just re- just stop and ask the Lord to bless our time. This is an important retreat. We work hard on things like um, protecting and maintaining the unity that we've worked so hard to develop. And we talk through a variety of things. Each retreats a little differently. So I, we really appreciate your prayers this weekend as we get away. We'll be gone Friday night through Saturday night. We'll be back Sunday. The second thing is, um, you know, Jason and Shane. I think most of you know Jason and Shane. Jason's often working back there, and sometimes he's singing. Shane's up here singing, sometimes playing the piano. We've prayed for his dad, Bob, for several months now, and he passed away last night from the cancer. So we saw it coming, um, and, and a bunch of us pleaded with God that he might change his mind, but he didn't. And so today is a new day for them. Uh, several of us have talked to Barb, uh, Jason's mom, and um, Jason as well, Jason and Shane. And uh, the whole family was there. He was there, and uh, his sister was there with her family. So he, he uh, said that he passed away peacefully in his sleep. So he is already experiencing the new creation. I'm a little envious of that. I, I'm very intrigued to find out what that's going to be like. So, but for them, for those that are left behind, there's a big hole. And many of you know what that's like. So let's stop and lift uh, them up. So, Father, we do pray for both the retreat this weekend. Lord, we're grateful that we even have the opportunity to get away, to um, to spend time together praying and thinking and talking and discussing and hanging out and just in, uh, enjoying what you're doing here at our church and our families. And, Father, I pray that uh, you would uh, bless us all as we uh, drive to this retreat. Lord, I know that our elders and our staff and the various leaders coming, that um, they're just great people. They just serve quietly. And I know that the spiritual battle is hard and challenging. So I pray that you protect them and their families. Thank you for the leaders that you've raised up for our church. We love our church and we love our leaders. And Father, we do pray for the Ardells. Pray for Barb right now as she's uh, woke up today. It's a new day, a new day without her husband. And uh, she's strong and um, she knows the truth, but that doesn't make it easier. Um, she's missing her husband. So I just pray, Lord, that for her and for Jason and his sister and for Shane and the family, that as they, as they work through a new day, I pray that your grace would be sufficient. I pray, Lord, that you would show yourself to them in ways that perhaps they haven't seen you before, and they would experience your grace uh, somehow in a new way. Strengthen them today and be with them. And be kind to them. In your son's name, amen. Okay, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're talking about <clears throat> revenge. It's not something I have to illustrate. You're all experts at it. You already know exactly what it means to. Even if you don't actually do it, it's up here. Right? Somebody cuts you off in traffic. How many of you think, oh, just bless that person? <laughs> Your wife says things that just cut right through. I'm using wife as an example because the husbands are the ones that usually receive it. Husbands don't have to put up, do these things. But the wives, somehow, I don't know how they did. How do you figure that out? Just push the right button. How do you do that? And how many of you think, oh man, she's just priceless. 
<laughs> we have one liar in the group. He just raised his hand. <laughs> right? I mean, you know what it's like. You get cut off by a snowboarder. <laughs> everywhere we turn, everywhere we turn, vengeance is something that is deeply rooted inside of us. It tells us something about ourselves. It tells us that we are made for justice. That's what it tells us. We wouldn't, we wouldn't automatically react every time. We're made for that. C.S. Lewis argued that everybody is born with a moral compass. The problem is the compass is broken. It can't find true north. How do you know what's right? How do, you know what, how do you know what justice really looks like? The second thing we learn, and this has been reinforced all the way through this series on the Sermon on the Mountain of the Beatitudes, is that we are not very good at it, at justice. We simply don't know how to do it. It goes back to the first thing, that compass is broken. We're wired for it, but we don't know how to do it. So we have two, <clears throat> two ways that our sense of justice is developed. If you're a Christian, and I think everybody sitting here, most of you are, it, we develop it over time by looking at the scriptures. We'll come back to that in a minute. And the second thing is we look at our cultural values. Our cultural values define for us what justice looks like in the legal system. And so we have this developing sense in our lives of what's right and wrong. Um, <clears throat> but we're not very good at it. We're simply not. Paul says in Romans, How would I have known that it was a sin to covet if God had never said, do not covet. We need God. We need God to tell us what justice looks like. The things, many of the things you take for granted came about because somebody before you put that into our culture. We believe murder is wrong, right? We do believe it's wrong. And yet, why did we come to that conclusion? <clears throat> It's not because of something inside. That's 1500 BC when God gave the Ten Commandments. Murder, from a moral perspective, entered the world stage. Prior to that, I don't, th I don't know of any evidence that we had ever, uh, civilization had ever conceived of murder from a moral perspective. A practical perspective, yes. If we murder each other in our own little group, we're going to have issues. But we have no compunction about murdering the people across the valley. So God speaks, Ten Commandments, comes, speaks into our world, and murder from a moral perspective begins to be discussed. And that begins to take shape, and we begin to frame our, civil, our values as a culture around that. And so today we live with the value that murder is wrong, and we assume that it's always been that way, and everybody thinks that way. But that's not the way it works. If God had never spoken, we would never know what is right and wrong. That's why the Bible is so important. It's so critical. And the things that we take for value in our culture, many of them, very, very good things came about because somebody before us developed these sense of values, these cultural ethics that, def that define who we are as a people. Some of you have heard the story a number of years ago that I was attending a theological conference in San Francisco and uh, um, I got tired of hearing theological papers read day after day after day for hours on end. So I grabbed my friend, another professor from another school, and uh, he and I went down to one of the bars in San Francisco where the Broncos were playing. So we sat down to watch the Broncos play, and um, so we're sitting there eating our pizza and stuff, watching the big screen. The three San Francisco businessmen in front of us uh, were not Bronco fans. That was pretty obvious. So knowing my love for trash talking, 
I began to enjoy that. Just lobbing these trash bombs onto their table. Of course, they reciprocated, so we were having a great time. In the middle of the second quarter, one of the guys on a commercial, the guy in the middle turned around and said, so what do you do? I love that question. I live for that question. What do you do? I said, theology. He goes, what? I said, theology. And he goes, theology. And I pulled out my card and I says, yeah, I have a PhD. And in fact, my friend Carl here has one. Carl, give him your card. My friend's going, oh boy. So he said, theology. I don't believe any of that. And I said, wow, sucks to be you. <clears throat> I stole that from my good friend Don Payne at Denver Seminary, a professor of theology. If a doctorate in theology can say it, I can say it. And so I said, wow, it sucks to be you. He goes, what do you mean it sucks to be me? Why do you believe it? And I said, that's easy. The real question is why you don't. How come you don't believe it? And he said, well, it's all myth. I said, all right, let me make sure I got this right. Now, his two buddies, in the meantime, turned around because they smelled blood and water. <laughs> so they turned around and they said, he, they're just quiet. But he said, I said, let me get this straight. You've read the Bible. You've read this. And you have explored the claims of Christianity. And you came to an educated perspective that uh, Christ, uh, Christianity is mythological. Is that right? I never forget. He looks at me and goes, I hate PhDs. <laughs> and I do. So is that true? Or did you form your opinion from a stereotype? And he said, I formed it from a stereotype. I've never read the Bible. And I said, you call yourself an educated American? You should be ashamed of yourself. And I had him back against the ropes. His, his friends are now sliding away. <laughs> so then he asked the real question. <clears throat> Why do you believe? Now I have the opportunity. I said, do you believe murder is wrong? And he said, well, of course. And I said, you can thank Christianity, Judeo-Christianity for that, because when God gave the Ten Commandments, I explained to him what I just did with you, that prior to the Ten Commandments, we have no record of world history. That, that was a moral question. And they all three go, huh. <clears throat> said, do you believe in dignity of the human? And they said, well, absolutely. I said, well, then it really sucks to be you. Because Christianity is the only religion that holds the dignity of the human. I'm made in God's image. I get to be me for all of eternity. And you know what? I kind of like being me. I don't want to reincarnate into an animal or a light source or somebody else. And I like you being you. And I like you being you. I like you being you. We're not Hindus. We're not Buddhists. And they all go, huh. We've never heard that. Okay, where'd that come from? Where'd that information come from? Right here. If God had never spoken, we would not be able to develop a sense of values and ethics and justice. It would not be possible. You with me? This Bible is priceless because it has given us what we need to frame out the values with which to live culture in a good way. It is. It's got it all in there. And our job on Sunday mornings is to help you make sense of it. Okay, so now Jesus comes along with the Sermon on the Mount and he begins right away to overturn the cultural values of the people of the first century. What he's telling us is you don't know how to do justice. You're thinking like the world, and that's a failed system. Do you really want to develop the kingdom? Then you have to re 
calibrate your thinking. And so the Mosaic Law was a very, very good, good set of laws. Fantastic. That's why all the authors of the New Testament called it holy, righteous, good, perfect. All those wonderful terms, because it was. You know why it was so good? Because our God spoke into a dark world and just talked to us. No other gods of all the surrounding nations ever talked. They had to guess. And our God said, I don't want you to guess. I want you to know. So here you go. And so, like any laws, if I look in your families and the laws that you put in place with your children, I can see what your true values are, and therefore I have a glimpse of what your character looks like. Well, the law, as we study it, begins to help us see the holy character of a wonderful God who loves us, just delights in us. And so that's what we learn by studying the law. So what Jesus does is comes along. He doesn't, he doesn't do away with the law. Remember, we said that. I didn't come to do away with it. I came to fulfill it. Not one even little tiny part is going to disappear ever while we're on the earth. And so the law is very good. What he's doing is he's now expanding it into our world so that it makes sense to us. So we can grasp what true holiness really looks like. Because that's critical for us. <clears throat> so, let's look at revenge. Revenge, this is the fifth time, Matthew five thirty-eight. This is the fifth time Jesus brings up an Old Testament teaching that he's going to expand on. So he begins with revenge language right from the Old Testament, Matthew five thirty-eight. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Okay. That's a quote. It's a quote out of Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. Um, But I want you to understand, in fairness to the law, the Old Testament is not encouraging uh, retaliation. Taken out of its context, that's what it looks like, doesn't it? Eye for an eye. Smack, somebody smacks you, smack them back. That's not what's happening with the law. I think what's happening is, in a world that was largely evil, was uh, not constrained at all, What the law did, as it spoke, is it began to bring unrestrained evil under control and introduce human dignity at the same time. So many areas of the law, we can see this happening. So what this language is doing is that it's controlling excesses by saying that the payment should fit the crime. What we refer to today with use of excessive force. Okay, If you come up and hit me in self-defense, I can hit you back. If you come up and hit me, I'm not allowed to pull out a gun and shoot you. <laughs> That's the use of excessive force. You can get in trouble for that. And so we even try to wrestle with that from a legal system of what justice looks like. And so that's what the Bible is doing. The Bible is laying out um, controlling excesses by saying, make sure the punishment fits the crime. So it's setting the stage for what Jesus is about to do. And additionally, the Old Testament made punishment part of the law court system. So it removed the possible the possibility of personal vengeance by doing that. It took it out of the power of the individual and placed it within the realm of courts, the legal system. That's still true today. That's still true today. You're not allowed to just do whatever you want and get vengeance on it. So the Old Testament <coughs> the Old Testament did some really good things to help us understand justice. So Jesus comes along and now begins to expand or recalibrate or help us understand this Old Testament concept when it comes to vengeance. The very next verse, Matthew 5.39, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now on the surface, his teaching seems to reject the principle of justice. 
But I'm going to argue that as we get into it, we're going to see something else at work here. He's not actually limiting justice. I think what he's doing is he's talking about personal vengeance rather than legal rights. Okay? As a Christian, we do not have the freedom to take things into our own hands. That's what he's going to argue. He's giving us a new way of living out the kingdom which the world does not understand. What he's going to argue is that we are not to descend to the level of the aggression and evil with which we face. We don't want an eye for an eye. That worked at a time in world history. But not anymore. Not with a new covenant in the Holy Spirit. That's not who we are. Now, to be sure, confrontation is still mandated by the Bible. Judgment demanded... When the poor, for example, are mistreated. Look at some of these verses. Psalm 82. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Psalm 82.3. Or, or uh, supposed to be Proverbs 31.9. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Or let's move on to Jeremiah. Jeremiah and Micah, the next two prophets, were written toward the end of the southern kingdom. Just to give you the context, the northern kingdom has already been destroyed. The southern kingdom is now uh, not too far away from being destroyed. And uh, the, the people from the north are coming to the south. The Jews are coming south to the other Jews, the two kingdoms. <coughs> Jeremiah says, their evil deeds have no limit. He's talking about the leadership. They do not seek justice. They do not promote the, uh, the case of the fatherless. They do not defend the just cause of the poor. Micah, the famous verse, they're turning away these refugees from the north, their own kinsmen. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What are you doing kicking out these refugees? They're your own kinsmen for crying out loud. And so justice is still part of the world we live in. When the poor, the marginalized, the orphans, the widows, James talks about that, are mistreated. We have an obligation to stand, to step in and help. He's talking about personal vengeance here. So Jesus now is going to provide four examples of how Christians should live as kingdom citizens. And these four move from the most violent to the least violent. <clears throat> so we're going to start with the most violent. <clears throat> Matthew 5.39, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Okay, there's a lot of discussion about why did he use the word right, the right cheek, what's behind it. And everybody, I think, pretty much agrees that it has to do with a, it's a very degrading act. So if I'm standing there with my slave, they're my property, or my spouse, or my child. Um, typically, we're right-handed. Okay, that's very common in countries outside of the West. Uh, there are no left-handed people um, for hygiene reasons. And so... How does a left-handed person strike the person on the right cheek? Like this. It's a backhand. It's the most degrading public form of humiliation. Okay? And what Jesus says here, if they strike you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. Um, <clears throat> the slap is designed to be an insult. What this means is that it's okay to place ourselves in a very degrading and vulnerable position rather than stooping to the level of violence that's being served on us. That's what it means. 
You see, the moral strength required to accept this level of violence is significantly stronger than the strength it takes to hit somebody. Hitting somebody is easy. Not. You understand what I'm saying? This is the answer to the spiral of violence. You hit me, I hit you. We can stop it. That's what this behavior is designed to do, is stop that spiral of violence. Hebrews 12, 14, as far as it is possible, be at peace with all people. Matthew 5, 4, uh, 9, we talked earlier, blessed are the peacemakers. We are to be peacemakers. Now, does it mean it's not the same as being a doormat? We'll come back to that in just a minute. He's not asking us to be a doormat. He's asking us to show a strength that is almost superhuman. That's what it is. We'll come back. Hang on to that. Okay, the second example is a lawsuit, Matthew 540. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. <coughs> Jesus is asking us to give the very clothing off of our backs. That's what he's asking. The average peasant in the Roman Empire had two levels of clothing. He had an inner garment, a tunic, or a shirt. And he had an outer garment, which was a coat. The outer garment was the more important one because it was used to keep him warm, carry his food, served his bedding, things like that. So the outer garment, the coat, was actually the more important one. Uh, The person that Jesus has in view here is probably guilty. That's why he's being sued. And is probably very poor. He has nothing to offer other than his clothing. So we know from Exodus 22 that even the poor have the right to keep their coat. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, that's that outer garment, return it by sunset because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. Okay, we just get a little snippet of what's coming. I will hear. God is not asking us to give up on judgment. He's asking us to let hate control. You understand the difference? He's not asking us to abandon fairness, equality, justice. He's asking us to let him dish it out. In this case, Jesus is calling us to relinquish the more prized possession and if necessary, appear before the court without either the inner or the outer garment. That means you're naked. You can't get any more vulnerable than that. For the sake of the kingdom. The third example is forced work. Verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is actually the case of the, uh, the situation with the Roman soldiers. They had the legal right to conscript you. Put you to work. We saw that in Mark 15 where Simon carried Jesus' cross. He wasn't given the choice. You carry the cross. They had the right to do that. Jesus is picturing a people that are willing to go the extra distance and carry a load. That's what he's picturing here. Now, compliance, think about the impact in society. If we do this, has the power 
to turn a demand into genuine public service. You want me to do that? I'd be glad to do it. In fact, let me do more. Understand what I mean? It's placing the power within our hands to really have a significant impact in our own culture. The final example is giving to, is giving to the poor. Verse 42. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So here we have a positive and a negative example. The first deals with those who beg, the poor. Give to those Give to the one who asks you, who begs from you. The second one deals with those who ask for a loan, the impoverished. The impoverished. Now, Luke 6 gives us a little bit of insight into this and adds that we should not expect anything in return. Look at Luke 6. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Let me restate that. Because he is kind to you. Let's just call it what it is. Romans 3. There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who even does any good. He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. We are blessed to be a blessing to others. That's what he's arguing. What's the blessing you received? Mercy. A priceless gift that you were given. <clears throat> this is the way we are to treat others. So what does all this mean? Well, uh, first of all, you have to acknowledge this is a very hard teaching. This fits in that category of the hard teachings of Jesus. There's no easy way to do this. There's no easy way to explain it. There's no easy way to get around it. If we do what Jesus asks us to do, it's a very demanding lifestyle. Let's just be honest. But Jesus himself modeled the principle. Look in 1 Peter 2. <clears throat> to this you were called because Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example. You were called to suffer. Get used to the idea. It's hard to do. But this you were called because Jesus, to this you were called, because Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And he quotes Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. God is not acting us to abandon Righteousness, judgments, fairness. He's not asking that at all. He's asking us to trust him to take care of it. You understand the difference? He's calling us to renounce our right to confront a hostile person with violence. Now, we can cry foul, and it's legit. 
it's not fair and it's not right. That's correct. We're not made for that. That's not what this world should be about. But it is the world that we live in. He's not asking us to give up justice. He's asking us to trust Him and model for a broken world what true righteousness actually looks like because that's what He did for us. We received mercy and grace. That's what we received. God will make things all, He'll make them all right one day, but not right now. Why? Because there's a higher priority in His path. Salvation of the world. The mission of God, the core mission of the Bible, is to reach the unchurched. That's the core mission. And that comes before our personal life, our personal vengeance. You understand? He will make it right one day. That will come. Just not yet. But it begins with us because we are the ones who show what it actually truly looks like to demonstrate love. Something the world cannot figure out. Just read the papers, the headlines, any day of the week. They cannot figure it out. Here's what Paul says in Romans 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay says the Lord. You know, it's not simply a matter of letting evil go unopposed. That's not it. He's not asking you to be a doormat. He's asking for something far more difficult that you turn on to love the person who's evil against you. That's what he's asking. We are to answer evil with good. It's not letting it go. It's not ignoring it. It's actually being very intentional about responding with the very gift that you were given. Grace. Mercy. That's what it means. He's asking us to expect little from this world, to place our trust in God, and to ultimately give up all for the sake of the kingdom. And that is a life that is very foreign to this broken world. We will always support uh, justice for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the needy, the oppressed, we will always do that. But what he's asking us is to give up our rights in a broken world. <clears throat> if you've never read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, it's worth reading. It's a story of a, a group from hell who ride a bus up to heaven. See what it's like. And, and, it's, and it's a whole series of encounters where they explore various concepts. But one of the concepts they explore in this, path, in this book is... The concept of rights. And one of the men that comes up from hell, he goes, he, the first person he sees is a former employee of his who murdered somebody. He's a convicted murderer. He goes, what are you doing here? You're a murderer. And he goes, yeah, I know I am. But it's all right now. Because the Lord made it right. What do you mean it's right? You know, I, I live my life the right way. All I ever asked was my rights. That's all I ever asked for was my rights. I never asked for anything more. I asked to get paid for what I worked All I demanded was my rights. And the guy said, no, you don't understand. There are no rights.
rights are an American cultural phenomena, not a biblical one. Do you really have the right to free speech? Ephesians 4, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. You can't say whatever you want. Do you really have the right to privacy? Everything will be exposed before him. Everything. Do you have the right to confidentiality? That's a legal concept. It's nowhere in the Bible. We grant it. We extend it. As long as it fits within the contours of the legal system. I'm a mandatory reporter like some of you. And there are sometimes I have to report things. Doesn't matter what you tell me. I will report them. Confidentiality is not a biblical right. It's a legal right. So what rights do you actually have as a Christian? Zero. And that's the point that C.S. Lewis makes. For the people in heaven, they go, what are you talking about? We don't have rights. We don't need them. We have something far better. We have grace. So then the authors of the New Testament say things like, why not be mistreated? Isn't that better? Why do you sue, Paul's at, Paul asks. Isn't it better to be mistreated for the sake of the kingdom? God is not asking us to give up justice. He's asking us to place it in his hands and let him deal with it. Can you do it? one of the hardest things you'll ever do. Father, all I can say is thank you for not giving me what I deserve. We use that language and it's kind of trite sometimes, but it really is the truth. Thanks for not giving me what I deserve. Thanks instead for giving me mercy, grace, your compassion and your deep love. Thank you for that. Your son's name. Amen. Example of one of those places that goes really, you're a very generous, the way you bless.